بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله This is lesson 91 So we began last week talking about one of the pivotal battles in the history of Islam known as the Battle of Al-Khandaq, the Battle of the Trench, also known as the Battle of Al-Ahzab, the Confederates or the Confederation of Tribes moving collectively against the Muslim community. Uh, last week we started about half an hour early and in all honesty it felt a little bit rushed because uh, there was a, an engagement to attend. So what I want to do is do a brief review of what led up to this battle and recap over some of the points we made last week and then get to the discussion of what happened after Quraysh and Ghatafan and the other tribes in this confederation arrived at the north of Medina to find this trench. What happened then and what happened in the subsequent days and nights. So going back to the background of this battle, we said it's called the Battle of Khandaq or Ahzab, two different names. Uh, Khandaq because of the trench that was built for the first time in Arabia as a tactic of war. It's called the Battle of Ahzab because it was the first time also in, our, in the history of Arabia where so many tribes all came together against a single enemy. So two things happened during this battle that had never happened before in Arabia. The trench as a tool of warfare and such a large confederation of tribes against a single enemy. So the background of this, it goes back to what happened with Banu Nadir. We know there are three Jewish tribes in Medina predating the Hijrah. Banu Qaynuqa', Banu Nadir, and Banu Quraidha. Banu Qaynuqa' has been expelled. They were the first to go because of breaching the contract, violating the treaty, killing a Muslim, and so on. The, sec the, the other two tribes are Banu Nadir and Banu Quraidha. Banu Nadir also violated the treaty when they conspired to kill the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims. And we know they too were expelled. What remains is the tribe of Banu Quraidha. And we see what happens to them in this battle as well. But the background of this battle goes back to Banu Nadir being expelled from Medina because when they left, they, the chiefs of them and a large group of them, if not all, they settled in a region that today it's about a two-hour drive from Medina, and it's called Khaybar. Khaybar is about two hours today, if you drive, from Medina. And this area was uh, good real estate, I guess you could call it, in that uh, it became a source of date palm plantations, a source of income for them. Uh, these things were there prior to their arrival. And they were able to live on this land and use their expertise in cultivating these date palm trees, which became a source of income for them. 
so you have there in Khaybar these tribal leaders of Banu Nadir. You have Salam ibn Mishkam. You have Huyay ibn Akhtab. You have others. But they aren't satisfied to just live in Khaybar now after being expelled. They want to go back to their compounds and properties and plantations that they owned in Medina before they were expelled. They wanted to go back. And they also wanted to exact revenge for the humiliation they suffered when they were forced to leave. So they violated the treaty. They broke the terms that they agreed to. But they feel bitter about the consequences of their own actions. And this is so so typical for human beings. They know that they're doing something wrong. But then they're upset that they should face the consequence for something that they knew was wrong to do in the first place. So this was the background. So they had this idea. Let them go to the elders of Quraysh. Let them go to some of the other Arab tribes and try to build a confederation. Build a, what did George Bush call it in the second Gulf War? The coalition of the willing. The coalition of the willing. He wanted, they wanted to build the coalition of the willing to conspire, to all move collectively against the Muslims in Medina. So they go to Mecca, they speak with Abu Sufyan. Abu Sufyan uh, agrees to this. He likes this idea. Initially, he wasn't eager to go out on his own, but now he has the support. He wants to go again. So they agree. Uh, Banu Nadir also goes to Banu Ghatafan, and they also agree. But their motives were a little bit different. Their motives weren't uh, about necessarily revenge like Abu Sufyan's motives were. It was opportunity for money because Banu Nadir offered them uh, half of their yield of dates if they go out and join them. And we see that as the battle uh, is, is getting warmer and warmer, Ghatafan even extends the offer to the Muslims to join their side for money. So for them, it wasn't really ideologically motivated or motivated by a sense of revenge or, or, or tha'ar as they call it. So they go, Ghatafan agrees. The Quraysh go and send out their own delegations to the other smaller tribes to get them in on the action. And they too agree. So you have Banu Asad, you have Banu Sulaym, Banu Murra, Banu Ashja'a, Banu Kinana, and so on. And all of these tribes agreed to come together and contribute to the war effort. And here the Sira works give us a lot of detail about how many members of this tribe came to the battle and how many horses did they bring, how much weaponry did they bring, how many camels did they have. We don't need to go through the entire list. But at the end, Ibn Ushaq says they were about 10,000 in total, 10,000 fighters. So... If, this is not just Quraysh. Now, Quraysh form the majority of these forces, but they're not uh, the only forces by any means. So as Quraysh begins to make their preparations to go north to Medina, once again, this is what? This is going to be the third time, is it? The third time for an actual battle. They're making preparations, and as they're doing that, a group from Khuza'a, uh, the tribe of Khuza'a got word of this. And a group of them rushed to Medina, traveling in four days and nights, arriving in Medina in record time. 
So they're basically moving nonstop, right? They get there to tell the Prophet wasallam what Quraysh are planning, uh, the fact that this is a, a confederation of tribes all gathering against you to fight you collectively. So when this happened, the Prophet wasallam did exactly as he did before Uhud. When news came to him before Uhud that Quraysh were making their way north, he convened Shura. He convened a council to tell the community elders what is going on and to get their ideas in a communal setting, a mashwara as they call it. Um, only this time the conclusions weren't like what happened with Uhud. Because the Uhud, you have the young men who didn't get to fight at Badr wanting to go fight Quraysh uh, face to face on the battlefield in a battlefield scenario. Meanwhile, the elders said, no, let's keep this in Medina. Let's keep it in the streets, in the alleyways. We'll contain them. And ultimately, we know what happened. This time, however, there was no debate. Oh, should we go face them on the battlefield or should we face them in the city? Here, the, the answer is too obvious. This is 10,000 people. If you go, how many Muslims are going to be fighting? 3,000 at the most. So if 3,000 are going out to face 10,000 on open terrain, it's not good. Now you have to understand that for the longest time in history, up until modernity, up until, you know, World War II perhaps, the outcome of battles was predicated on numbers. The more men you have, the more fighters you have, the greater the chance of winning. Right? You could be the most skilled fighter by yourself. You could be the top UFC champion. But if 10 or 15 normal, you know, average trained fighters swarm on you, you're not going to win. They're going to just overwhelm you with sheer numbers. Same thing in battle. If there's 1,000 of you and 10,000 of them, without strategy, without routing and without flanking maneuvers and all of these ta tactics, Chances are you're not going to win just because they have the numbers on their side. So the only way you can beat them is to use the numbers against them. And the way you use numbers against them is to limit the effect of those numbers by containing them in a way where the numbers, their large force, the, the power of that large force is negated by the terrain or the, the difficulty in maneuvering those large forces. Hence the idea of Salman al-Farisi radiallahu anhu to build the trench. The idea behind the trench is not to keep them out forever as if they're isolating themselves from the rest of the world, building a virtual moat around the city of Medina. That wasn't conceivable, nor was that intend intended. Because the Muslims, this is the winter time, right? Uh, food supplies are dwindling. It's getting cold. They need to have access to the outside world to have access to food and supplies and water and this and that. Um, there's not enough time to build a trench that goes all the way around. And the intention was to hold them off. You know, to basically buy them time so they can strategize and prepare to maneuver in such a way that they could deal with this massive force all congregating to attack the community. So Salman's suggestion of building the trench was accepted. And we mentioned how when the scholars discussed this hadith of Salman's idea, they say that one of the lessons you derive from that is 
how in Islam we take the very best from uh, cultures. This was a Persian tactic. The Arabs had never done it before. Yet it was accepted because it was a good idea. So the idea was accepted on the merits of the idea and it wasn't rejected just because it was a, an Ajami tactic. You know, that's their tactics. We don't take their tactics. If it's a halal thing and it's beneficial, you take from the expertise and the experience of other cultures and groups. And we see that also in the other ways the Prophet ﷺ would interact with the emperors and rulers by stamping the letters with the seal, using the khatim with the seal, Muhammad Rasulullah. That wasn't an Arab practice, but when he was told that this is the only way the emperors would receive letters from dignitaries, he did that. Which means you, you take some measures to facilitate da'wah in a way that is more receptive to the target audience. Anyhow, the trench is being dug, and we went into some detail last week about how it was dug. We mentioned how the Prophet ﷺ assigned 40 yards for every 10 men. And each group was designated a certain area. The Ansar had their areas. The Muhajirun have their areas. And you know, this is something that comes up time and time again in the seerah. When they're being organized, the Muhajirun are with the Muhajirun. The Ansar are with the Ansar. The people of this tribe are with their own tribesmen. The way they organize the regiments is like this. It's tribally based, right? Because you have relationships with these people. You have history with these people. You have certain shared customs, inter-tribal customs with your, those people. So it's easier to gel with your own tribesmen. And that leads to greater cohesiveness in fighting than if you just mix everybody up. Right? It's like the iftar table in Ramadan. Like, there's nothing inherently negative with Pakistanis sitting with Pakistanis and some Syrians sitting with Syrians and some uh, you know, African-Americans sitting with African-Americans. Like, and then you have people who just sit with everybody. That's all beautiful and good. It's just nature. It's human nature to uh, gel with people you understand that are your own. And this was done here as well. And they're digging uh, collectively, competing with each other as well as to who can dig the most and the fastest, going back and forth. And that's the background to the hadith of Salman, when uh, the Ansar are saying, no, Salman, minna, he's from us. So he's outworking everybody. And then the, 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 the Muhajirun say, no, Salman is from us. And then the Prophet sallallahu says, Salman, minna, ahlil bayt, he's from us, the family of the, the, the household, the family of the Prophet sallallahu So, the length of the trench, we talked about this last week as well. Some of the modern authors of the seerah have tried to reconstruct from the data found in the various seerah works the exact length, depth, and width of the trench based on the locations of the trench in the north of Medina. So it's really it's difficult to get an accurate estimation. It's a, it's, these are attempts. And some of them say that it was approximately two kilometers long and that it was about 10 to 13 feet wide and between 15 to 20 feet deep. And that makes sense if you consider that the trench is meant to keep out men on foot, infantry, as well as cavalry, men on horses from jumping over. If it's too short, the horses can jump over. If it's 
if it's not deep enough, then you could just, you know, slide down and climb up, right? It has to be wide enough and deep enough to keep people out. So that's a good estimate. And as we said, it was to buy time. After the trench was completed, they had six days to spare before the forces of Quraysh and Ghattafan and the other tribes arrived at Medina. And during that time, the Prophet ﷺ gave a command to send the women and children away to a fortress uh, belonging to Banu Haritha. This fortress was called, called Al-Fari'ah. This is important because this is going to come up later in the story. Uh, what happened to the people in that fortress and the great risks they were facing, the great threats they were under and the fear they were having to deal with as the days went on in, in this battle. So this fort was not as strong or as powerful as the forts belonging to the Jewish tribes because they would have these large forts. This was a fort belonging to Banu Haritha. It wasn't as well built uh, or as strong. So there's that, there's that added problem too, that if it becomes a siege, it won't really hold long. It's just a place to house people collectively, women and children, so they can stay out of harm's way during the duration of the fight. So that's what we covered last week in a nutshell. The plan of the battle, what exactly was the plan once the fighters of the Arab tribes arrive? What did the Muslims plan to do once they get there? The plan, according to the Sirah books, they say that the plan was to position themselves, the Muslims, to position themselves where their backs are towards a mountain called Jabal Sila' and they're facing the trench which is to the north. Now, next week I'm going to give you guys a map because you want to visualize this because it's the movement of the Confederates, the Ahzab, as well as Banu Quraidah, as we'll see. So that, and that's coming from the south, right? You know, at first it's just facing the enemy from the south. But soon it's going to be the enemy from the, 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 the north, sorry, the north first from the Ahzab. Then it'll be from the south. And Allah Ta'ala mentions that in Surah Al-Ahzab. So they're wanting to position themselves in, in a way similar to Uhud, where they maximize the terrain, the back is to the mountain, and they're facing the enemy. But between them and the enemy is this large trench, all right? So the enemy groups, we mentioned that there's 10,000 of them. And the majority of them were from Quraysh. When we go into the works of Sirah, we find that there's uh, divisions, right? Ibn Sa'd mentions in his tabaqat that the Quraysh themselves were 4,000 out of the 10,000. And they had 300 horses and 150 camels. And he, they, Ibn Sa'ad mentions that there were 700 people from Banu Sulaym, 1,000 from uh, Banu Fizara, and this is led by Uyayna bin Hizan. Uyayna bin Hizan al-Fizari. He is the one, if you remember, he came to the house of the Prophet ﷺ, entering without permission and was speaking rudely, saying, why are you married to this Humayra? You should divorce her and I'll give you one of my wives. I'll divorce my wife and you can marry her. Uh, there's a long story with this guy. And the Prophet ﷺ called him uh, Al-Ahmaq Al-Muta'a, the, 
the fool, the foolish person who has obeyed among his people. And there's a whole story about how he became the leader, even though he was an idiot. There's a whole story. It involved abuse, child abuse, uh, trauma, bloodshed, slashing, fighting, and just you know, clawing to power. So there's a long story with him. But there's a thousand from his people. 400 from Banu Asja, 400 from Banu Murra, 700 from Banu Asad, uh, and there's others. So six days after they built this trench, these confederation of tribes arrived for battle. Initially, they set up camp in a place where the flood water would collect. Uh, and this involves the geography of Medina. It's difficult. I mean, we can read the Sirah and it names the places, but unless you know where those places are, it's kind of hard to put an image to what they're describing. But you know, Medina has areas that collects flood water. And when it rains, like it did last year, the same areas where the flood water collected, you find it, it gets pulled into certain reservoirs. So they were in this place uh, where wa- flood water would collect. Ghatafan, because they're coming from the Nejd, which is the east, they are camping near Uhud. Right? So they're making their way to the only attack point possible, which is the north of Medina. Right? South is filled with date palm trees. And then from the east and the western side, you have the volcanic plains. It's inhospitable terrain. They can't really mount an attack from those sides. So they're all making their way north. Uh, the women and children are now in that fort of Al-Fari'. He leaves Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum in charge of Medina. Even though he's in Medina, but he's in charge of you know, the affairs as he's moving around inspecting the troops and involved in the warfare. Because ibn Umm Maktoum is... He's blind, right? He gives the liwa, the battle standard, to, uh, of the muhajirun, to Zayd ibn al-Haritha. And for the Ansar, he gives their liwa to Sa'ad ibn Ubadah, radiallahu anhumah. And in the lead up to the fight, they set up a command post for the Prophet sallallahu Very similar to the command post he had at Uhud and Badr, which was this, it's like a tent but it's made of leather, you know, like a thick leather. Uh, it, with, it can withstand some arrows coming at a distance. It's a thick leather uh, tent. This became the command post where he was organizing the troops and finding out, you know, what's going on. And there at his command post, the Sahabi Abad ibn Bishr radiallahu anhu was one of the guards, guarding it every single night as the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam would spend time there and then spend time each night taking turns spending nights with Aisha, with Umm Salama and Zainab. So he's dividing the nights between those three of his wives and at the other times he's in this command post. But as we'll see, he's also moving around the city, around the trench and organizing the forces. Um, the rest of the wives, where are they? Because remember it says, in the nights, he'd go stay on alternative nights with Sayyidah Aisha, Sayyidah Umm Salama, and Sayyidah Zainab. That means they're in their homes. Where's the other wives? They're at the fort. All the rest of the wives are at the, at the fort. Only these three wives are not in the fort. They are actually in the thick of the battle in the sense that they're in the area where it's taking place. Right? Although they're in their homes. So there's some measure of protection that affords them. So when 
the Muslims finally see the confederations amassing on the northern part of Medina, this you know, massive thousands of people amassing. After all of this preparation, and they're tired from the preparation, and it's, it's winter time, when they see them, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala records exactly what the Muslims said. Allah ta'ala mentions this in the chapter known as Surah Al-Ahzab. Allah ta'ala says, وَلَمَّا رَأَى الْمُؤْمِنُونَ الْأَحْزَابَ قَالُوا هَذَا مَا وَعَدَنَا اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ وَصَدَقَ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ وَمَا زَادَهُمْ إِلَّا إِيمَانًا وَتَسْلِيمًا Allah says that when the believers saw the Ahzab, they said, this is what Allah and His Messenger have promised us. And Allah and His Messenger have spoken the truth. That's what they said. And Allah Ta'ala says after this, and that did not increase them except in iman and submission. They weren't shaken by this. It actually increased them in firmness. And there's a very important lesson here for all of us. Difficult times, you know, trials and tribulations faced by the ummah and faced by humanity. Fitna. Ugliness, civil conflict, all of this that's going on in the world and that has been going on, which is only increasing, all of these things should only increase our iman if we know what has been said about them by the Prophet. And this is the great benefit of learning the signs of the last day the Ashrat al Sa'ah, the Sughra al Kubra, the major and minor signs. Because when you learn the major and minor signs of the last day, not just the Dajjal per se, or Ya'juj and Ma'juj, you know, not just the major signs, but a lot of the minor signs, particularly about fitna and corruption and the, de- the degeneration of knowledge and authority, when you become familiar with those signs that come from the lamp of prophethood, Mishkat al from his words, and then you see them in 2020, 2021, 2022, 2023, and every year you see more and more. You know, it's not that you're happy with those things. They are disturbing, and they should be. But at the same time, you can't help but to see those things going on in the world around you and say, Allah and His Messenger have spoken the truth. I am seeing in the world all the insanity that I see is exactly what they spoke about. So that increases me in Iman. So I respond to it with an increase in Iman, not being dejected and blackpilled, as they say, but it is what it is. And you know, you respond as the believer should respond. You plant your sapling, you keep moving in a positive way to please Allah, right? To seek the pleasure of Allah. It is what it is. So the believers see this and that's their response. You know? That's not the response of everyone, as we'll see. So, as we said, the largest group of fighters from the Ahzab are Quraysh. Then and you have Abu Sufyan as their head. After them, you have the Banu Ghatafan, the second largest group. And as we said about Banu Ghatafan, they didn't have the same desire for revenge of Tha'ar that Quraysh had. They were opportunists. They took up arms because they were offered 
uh, half of the yearly yield of Banu Nadir of all of the dates they could uh, harvest. Before the battle took place, as they were assembling here, Banu Nadir actually sent messages to the Muslims, seeking to negotiate. You know, they're playing both sides. You know, to see which is which is the better deal. Who's going to give us the better deal? If th these guys give us a better deal, we'll be on their side. If they give us a better deal, we'll be on their side. It's not about ideology or belief or revenge. We just want the money. So they send a messenger to the Prophet Sallallahu uh, saying that the Jews have offered us half of Khaybar, meaning half of the dates, what they produce in the year, to fight you. But if you give us a third of the harvest of all of Medina, which is more than Khaybar, then we'll, we won't fight you. We'll just, we'll just leave. That was the offer. Now think about it. You could give them one-third of the yield, and you've, you've, you've significantly reduced the forces. They go home. It gives you better odds of winning. So when this happened, the Prophet ﷺ called for Ashura. He calls for Ashura, and he calls for Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh and Sa'ad ibn Ubadah, because these are the two leaders of Aus and Khazraj, respectively. And he asked them what their position was, because these are people of Medina, these are the natives. So both Sa'ad ibn Ubadah and Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh asked the Prophet ﷺ, Ya Rasulullah, is this suggestion or this idea of giving one-third is this from wahi is it from revelation is it something allah has revealed to you or is it something that is open to discussion they said if it's from wahi then we give it it is what it is but if it's something open for discussion well let us say that we have never ahl medina we have never humiliated ourselves in jahiliyyah so why should we do it now in islam it's seen as humiliating you're you're what do they say don't negotiate with terrorists right don't give them money don't pay them to leave and not fight you that is actually it could be a sign of weakness it at least signals weakness to them that they could come back and shake you down for money next time right so the prophet sallallahu sent a an emissary a messenger, back to the tribe of Ghatafan, telling them, we have no need of your offer. And so the deal is sealed. They're with the side of Quraysh. They're on the Confederate side. They're going to fight. So up until now, nothing's happened. There's no, there's no fighting just yet. But we have our skirmishes. Uh, when the Mushrikun arrived to attack, they expected that they would just collectively descend upon Medina and it would be an easy fight they get there they travel from their different routes they assemble they go north and they get to the trench and they see this trench what the, what is this they, they've never seen it before now some of them are aware of what a trench is right because in the Sira works we have some narrations that one of them said this tactic has never been used before by the Arabs. And another one of them said, they have a Persian man who suggested it to them. So some of them know that this is a tactic taken from the Persians, but the Arabs never had the opportunity or the wherewithal to do it in their own battles. So now 
all they can do now is lay siege. So if the trench was like a wall around the city and they get there, all they can do now is lay siege to the city. Siege warfare. You wait them out. You look for opportunities, sensitive areas. You pr poke and prod to find areas where you can get an opening to bring your troops in and breach the wall or breach the trench or somehow get over onto the other side. So what we have in the seerah is a description of the different ways they tried to do that. So one narration says that Abu Sufyan takes a group and goes on one side. Khalid bin Walid takes his troops and they go to some other side. Uh, we have uh, Amr bin As going with some troops to another area. And they're all patrolling different areas around the trench looking for a position, right? They're going with their horses, they're moving here, they gather here, they move there, and in between all of that movement, they're seeing the Muslims on the other side, so they begin to fire some arrows, Muslims fire back, but there's some distance, you know? You know, if you've ever practiced archery, you realize, you know, past 50 yards, you have to be really, really good and have a very powerful uh, a bow to get accurate shots, you know, past 50, 60 yards. So if you have this trench and the Muslims are on the other side, it's just going to be light skirmishes of shooting arrows back and forth. So they're doing this, and the Muslims are guarding the trench and firing back and maneuvering as they maneuver. It's, it's not really a battle. It's just each one trying to poke and prod and, you know, feel each other out like you would in a fight before you start really swinging. You kind of get a feel for where the person is and their reaction, how they're thinking, and then predict what they're going to do and try to respond to that. So it was like that for 20 days and 20 nights. No real battles, just moving around, shooting some arrows, regroup here, move the horses there. But it is day and night, and there is a worry that you know, people get tired. You can't do this all day and all night. You have to sleep. You have to rest. You have to eat. So there was a worry that Quraysh would try to send some force to sneak in past the trench and attack them at night. So, of course, the Prophet ﷺ ensures that there are Muslims patrolling through the night. And, and he himself is engaging in these patrols. So they're not really sleeping in their homes during the entire 20 nights. They're patrolling and taking short naps. They're getting back up, doing guard duty, going back and forth. So Ibn Ishaq talks a little bit about these patrols. And he says that a group of the Sahaba were assigned the job to patrol the trench for the whole night. So they're not doing four hours on and four hours off. It's the whole night. And their job was to go all across both sides, you know, you know all around the trench. At night, you know, there's no electricity, so it's really, really dark, right? And they're supposed to go, and as they're moving every, you know, 20, 50 yards, we don't have an exact estimate, but they're going, and every time they make some movement, they all shout collectively, Allahu Akbar! Because they want to give the Quraysh the impression that they are always ready to fight. Even if it's a small group and others are trying to rest, they're giving Quraysh the impression that they are out there in force. And the way they give them that impression is to shout Allahu Akbar because they can't see them, but they can hear them.
So they're doing this. Now Um Salama, who's one of the three wives that stayed in Medina and wasn't at the fort, she later reflected on this experience. And she says, I witnessed many battles with the Prophet ﷺ in which there was fighting and fear. al uh, Muraysir, you know, Banu Mustalaq, which happened before. Khaybar, uh, this one. The lead up to Hudaybiyah, Fathu Mecca, and Hunayn later on. She says, but none of them were, uh, were as tiring and as fearful as Khandaq. So out of all the battles she witnessed, she's saying that this one, it, had, it, it was the most fatiguing, the most tiresome, and the one that was filled with the most fear and anxiety because of the sheer numbers and the sheer exhaustion of just trying to guard the city all this time when you're completely outnumbered. She says, we were worried for our children, for Banu Qurayza, as you'll see. And in Medina, it was patrolled all night long, and we would hear the takbir of the Muslims all the way until Fajr. So you're, try, you, you, you're trying to sleep, you have to sleep. But as you're sleeping, you constantly hear the takbirat, because the Muslims are making these takbirat to let the, the Quraysh and Ghatafan and others know, no, we're still here. We're in the fight. Don't even think about trying to sneak over. We're ready. So Ibn Hisham, he also narrates a really beautiful narration regarding this patrol. And he narrates that the Prophet ﷺ was also engaged in these night patrols. He wasn't just delegating that job to others. He was also doing it himself. So Ibn Hisham relates from Sayyidah Aisha radiallahu anha, who's reflecting on this incident. She says, one night we heard, you know, the, I don't know what you call it, you know, like the, the clinking of armor, you know, when the armor makes noise with the metals hitting each other. We heard the, the armor moving around and clinking and that a man was walking outside. And the Prophet ﷺ was outside and he says, Man anta. So he's outside guarding. Rasulullah is outside guarding. She's inside the house. She hears the armor and the metal clinking. The Prophet is outside. She hears him say, Man anta, who is that? And then he says, It is Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas. Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas is strapped. He's got the armor on. And what has he come to do? He has come to relieve the Prophet so he can get some rest. He came of his own accord, looking for him, and then he says, you know, I've come here to give you my services, to relieve you of your shift. And the Prophet ﷺ says, okay, in that case, you stay here and I will go rest. Sayyidah Aisha witnessed this when she heard it from inside of the house. He comes in and he falls asleep immediately. He falls asleep immediately and Sayyidah Aisha says that he fell asleep just like that. To the point, she said, I could hear his breathing, heavy breathing. Uh, as a side point, we don't call the heavy breathing of the Prophet ﷺ snoring. We don't call it snoring. Because snoring is a respiratory defect. And he's free of having a respiratory defect. It's just heavy breathing. Some of the mashayikh say that that heavy breathing when sleeping for him was tasbih. It was a kind of tasbih. Right? Dhikrullah. So he was in deep sleep. 
But we know that his eyes sleep, but his heart doesn't sleep. And that's on all occasions. But he was still very fatigued. So Sayyidah Aisha reflects on this and says, I'll never forget what Sa'ad did that night. Because she, he relieved the Prophet ﷺ, who himself is putting himself out there patrolling through the nights. So this is at this, we're now at the stage, you know, we haven't gotten to the thick of the battles yet. You know, it's just it's leading up to that over many, many days of this. It's very tiresome what they're dealing with. And as they're dealing with these constant night patrols and skirmishes during the day, uh, they're soon going to come to something that's very, very stressful. Something that adds a layer of danger that wasn't even there before. And that is the betrayal of Banu Quraidah. Banu Qaynuqa was the first, they were expelled. Banu Nadir was second, they were expelled. Banu Quraidah is the third and final tribe of the Jewish tribes that remain in Medina, upholding the Mithaq, the treaty. But it was on the occasion of this Ghazwa that they betrayed the treaty. And there's going to be some effects, some after effects of that betrayal, as we'll see later on. So what happened? Well, to be mindful of the time here, we have like 20 minutes. Um, what happened was that Abu Sufyan, who is the head of the Quraysh among these Ahzab, he secretly sends Huyay ibn Akhtab, who is a tribal leader of which Jewish tribe? Banu Nadir. So they're the ones behind the, the battle of the Ahzab, right? Because they were in Khaybar. So Huyay ibn Akhtab is sent by Abu Sufyan secretly to go to Banu Quraida and ask them to break the treaty. So there was already tension. You understand? Banu Qaynuqa broke the treaty, they're expelled. Banu Nadir broke the treaty, they're expelled. Banu Quraida hasn't yet broken the treaty, but there's still tension. And the Muslims did not trust them, did not believe that they're fully loyal. That's why they put them in the compound and didn't just leave them with Banu Quraida. Because Banu Quraida, remember the part of the treaty is that if the Muslims are attacked, a part of the treaty is that they have to respond and also fight alongside the Muslims. Where are they to be found? So, you know, it's, it's very suspicious what's going on here. So Abu Sufyan sends Huyay ibn Akhtab secretly to go ask them to break the treaty. So he gets there and he wants to go meet the head of Banu Quraida, whose name was Ka'ab ibn Asad al-Quradi. There's lots of Ka'abs, right? You have Ka'ab ibn Ashraf, right? You have the Sahabi. Ka'b ibn Malik, and then you have Ka'b ibn Asad, right? So it's a common name. So Ka'b ibn Asad al-Quradi, he's called Quradi because he's from the tribe of Banu Quraida. So the Sira works that mentioned that Huyay ibn Akhtab goes and knocks on the door of Ka'b ibn Asad, and Ka'b refused to open the door or let Huyay in. He said, I am not having anything to do with you. Why? Because who was responsible for Banu Nadir getting kicked out of Medina? It was Huyay. He was responsible for getting his people kicked out. And now he's showing up to the house of Kaab. He wants the same thing to happen to him. So you see, there's a reluctance. They don't want to just go out there and do something. They don't want to get involved. You know, they don't want to go fight. But at the same time, they're not, they don't want to violate a treaty initially. They don't want to overtly try to subvert the treaty 
and betray the Prophet wasallam, at least not initially. But you know, Huyay, he has this way about him. He would not take no for an answer. The seerah accounts, if I read them to you, it would take me 10 minutes to read them. Because he didn't give up. He just kept pressing Ka'b ibn Asad and just trying to convince him to side with them and join the Ahzab. And Ka'b ibn Asad's having nothing to do with it. He's saying, no, no, no. And he's saying all these mean things to Huyay. Huyay is not, not deterred in the least. He just keeps pressing it, you know? You know, there's people like that. They just don't take no for an answer. You can reject it a thousand times. They're like the worst of the worst uh, used car salesmen, you know? So the Sira works mention that Kaab refused to even open the door initially. And he said, don't associate with them. Don't associate with Banu Nadir because we don't know to whom victory will come. You see, it wasn't don't associate with them because we have a treaty and we want to honor the treaty. No. Is don't associate with them because we don't know who's going to win yet. You see, it's, you know, even though they're not yet violating the treaty, they're still in their heads playing both sides to waiting out, you know, hmm, shift our loyalties depending on who wins here. He says, don't associate with them. We don't know to whom victory will come. Beware of Huyayi because he was the cause of his own people's downfall. But Huyayi didn't give up. He kept talking and talking and talking. And Kaab ibn Asad was very hesitant to break the treaty. But eventually Huyay convinced him by enticing him with promises of immense wealth. And he tried to reassure him that victory was inevitable for the Ahzab because they were so large a force. So it only makes sense for Banu Qurayla to break the treaty and join their side because number one, they're not going to lose. There's too many of them. Number two, if you join us, you'll get paid. And they're already playing both sides, but now he's getting enticed. Now he's listening. But Kaab is still feeling some kind of way about this. And Kaab ibn Asad said to him, Ya Huyay, oh Huyay, leave me. I have seen nothing from Muhammad except loyalty and honesty. By Allah, he did not force a religion upon us, nor did he take our wealth. We don't have any resentment towards him or his actions. And what you're calling us to is nothing but ruin. But Huyay keeps going. He keeps enticing him and promising him. Eventually, Ka'ab ibn Asr was convinced to break the treaty and join forces with the Ahzab. But he had a condition. That condition is that if Quraysh and Banu Ghattafan are unsuccessful in killing Muhammad, as they put it, then Huyayi would agree to hold himself up in the compound of Banu Quraydah in the event of there being a siege after you know some counter-response. Basically telling him, I'll join you, but if, if you guys lose, uh, you don't get to escape with them. You get to fall as we're going to fall. Because we can't escape. We're here. So Huyay agreed to that. He agreed because he felt we're going to win anyway. So sure, I'll agree to that. It won't happen. It won't materialize. So sure, I'll go along with it. So now Banu Qulayla has officially broken the treaty. The third of the three tribes that breaks the treaty. The Sira narrations mentioned that they took the treaty that was written 
And they ripped it open, ripped it apart, and cast it down, breaking the treaty. They tore up the document. They wrote a letter to Abu Sufyan and to Uyayna bin Hassan al-Fizari saying, Remain steadfast, be firm. We will attack them from the rear and wipe them out. Okay, you see the issue here. This is where we need the map. The Ahzab, the trenches to the north, the Ahzab are on the other side of that trench. Right? To the south, you have Banu Quraidha. So if you're guarding the trench, you have the trench as a protective measure. You're holding off these forces. You have the terrain to your right and to your left. Where's your vulnerable point? This is the south. Banu Quraidha is coming from the south. So if they come from the south, they can deal with the Muslims in a way that those on the other side of the trench can't. So now you have a, pin, a pincer force in a way where you have a force from the north and a force from the south pinching. So this became a huge problem. Um, we have 10 more minutes. So we're probably going to finish just this story about how this happened and how the Muslims found out and what they did in response. So news of this, of course, gets back to the Prophet ﷺ that Banu Quraidha has broken the treaty. So he responds by saying, Hasbunallahu wa ni'mal wakil. Allah is sufficient for us and he is the best disposer of affairs. This is the news that reaches him, but he has to verify it. In order to verify it, he seeks individuals who can go to Banu Quraidha and verify it themselves and bring the news back to him. And so it was that Zubayr bin Awam agreed and he also sent Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh of Aus and Sa'ad ibn Ubadah of Khazraj along with Abdullah ibn Rawaha and Khawat ibn Jubair to also go and investigate. So it's a little delegation going to investigate the matter. You know, the two sides are sent because they have a history with these tribes, right? So he tells them before they go to investigate that if it turns out to be true that they have betrayed the treaty, you ha let us know, bring back that news in a cryptic way, you know, not so obvious way. Why? Because if you bring back the news that, oh yes, this tribe has completely broken the treaty, they are a large force and they're going to come up from the south. If you just proclaim that after 20 nights of struggling to just hold these forces off, it's really going to affect the morale. He says, if, if it's true, then communicate that in a cryptic way, in an indirect way. And if it's not true, then proclaim it openly. Because if it's not true, then that reassures the fighters that, okay, we're, we're actually good. We're protected from the back. We don't have to worry about that threat. So they go and they find out, yes, this is all true. They have broken the treaty and they are making plans. So they get back to the Prophet ﷺ and they have to communicate this cryptically using what we call tawriya, which is you know, like indirect way. Right? Well, let, like, let's say if there's bad news to communicate, but you don't want to say what the bad news is, you just want to confirm if it's true or not, you could use some code words, right? Maybe it could be you know, some names of, of bad people, you know? 
You know, so you want to cryptically communicate to someone bad news. You say, hey, that situation we were talking about, it's like Netanyahu. You're not going to think it's good, right? So that's kind of what they did. They get back to the Prophet وسلم, and they say, Abul wal Qara. Abul wal Qara. What does this mean? Abul and Qara are the names of two clans that were responsible for the massacre at the well of Ar-Rajir and Bir Ma'una that happened with the Sahaba and those Qurra when they were massacred. Those are the names of the tribes. So by naming those tribes, it's like because they betrayed the Sahaba. And likewise, this group is now betraying everybody. So they say these two groups, Adr Waqara, as if to say treachery uh, and traitors, you know, Netanyahu, Sharon, or you know, whatever name you could use. It's just communicating it in an indirect way. But when the Prophet ﷺ heard this, he says, Allahu Akbar, Abshiru. He says, Glad tidings to the Muslims. And then he covers his head with his shawl and he goes to lie down. And the Muslims don't know what's really going on here. You know, there's, there's this discussion, then they go and they come back some hours later. He says this and then he goes to lie down. But they intuited that although it was cryptically communicated, it wasn't good news. It was not good news for them. So the Muslims began to feel the effects of, you know, fear and worry. And you know, I intended to cover this. I'm wondering if I should now because of the time. Many of the Muslims, when they reflected on this moment, they said, this was the worst night of our lives. You really have to put yourself in their shoes. Like we're so, we're so bereft of any life experience that could allow us to appreciate even a fraction of what they went through. But if you imagine yourself in the winter with dwindling food supplies, where there's two, 3,000 of you, 10,000 of them, and now an additional couple of thousand coming from the south who've betrayed. You're surrounded and you don't have much. Right? They said it was the worst night of our lives. And they're fear, they're worried about their wives and children in the fort who are some distance away. They can't even see them. So they're worried about them as well. So all types of thoughts cross their mind. So I, this is where I'm going to end. I want to continue this next week, but I'll end with this. And that is the words of Allah Ta'ala. Allah revealed the experiences and feelings of the Muslims and others. He says about this night, إِذْ جَاءُوكُمْ مِنْ فَوْقِكُمْ وَمِنْ أَسْفَلَ مِنْكُمْ وَإِذْ زَاغَتِ الْأَبْصَارُ وَبَلَغَتِ الْقُلُوبُ الْحَنَاجِرُ وَتَظُنُّونَ بِاللَّهِ الظُّنُونَ هُنَالِكَ بُتُلِيَ الْمُؤْمِنُونَ وَزُلْزِلُوا زِلْزَالًا شَدِيدًا in this ayah, Allah Ta'ala says, remember when they came at you from above you, the north, the Ahzab, and from the Asfal, from beneath you, that's Banu Quraidha. And when your eyes grew wild in horror, and your hearts jumped to your throats in fear, and you entertained various thoughts about Allah. تَظُنُّونَ بِاللَّهِ أَظُنُّونَ We'll talk about that. It was then and there the believers were put to the test and were shaken. So here, let's reflect on just, just a moment before we, we end the class. 
this is not speaking negatively about the believers. This is actually praising the believers because Allah Ta'ala does not say uh, He doesn't say that they thought a bad thought about Allah. He says they thought various thoughts about Allah. Collectively, different thoughts. So for the believers, Imam Al-Razi says, for the mu'minun, their thoughts were khair. For the munafiqun, they were evil thoughts. So they had good thoughts. But there were all manners of thoughts going through their mind. You know, what's going to happen, right? What's going to be the outcome? How is it we're going to meet our fate? So inshallah, we'll uh, pick up on that next week as we go into their response and then the actual battle and other events that take place. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen.